Welcome, everybody. Good to see all of you this morning on this Baptism Sunday. We are seven days in to 40 days of prayer and fasting, as Brad was just mentioning a moment ago. And um, so this has been a, a, a time for us where we've been challenging ourselves just to enter in with some needs of the church. Um, and we talked about that last week. And then um, with this series, Voices in the Wilderness, just saying, what, what in our lives do, feels too big for us? And do we need God to engage with us on? And so um, we started this journey last week, and uh, the, the, it was to give up a, a food item. And um, this next week, it's to give up lunches and see God and pray during that time. And those guides will lead you through that. I don't know about you, um, but if you were fasting and doing that this past week, this was a hard week for me. Uh, was it hard for anybody else? Uh, I found this to be really uncomfortable, not just because of the urge I, of, of the food item I gave up, but just emotionally. I don't know what it was. Um, it just felt like a difficult week. And so we've been engaging with this passage of Scripture where Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he faces three temptations. And so um, we're going to look at the first of those three temptations today. And David and I, the Plaid brothers, we did not plan this, by the way. I don't know how this happened. Hot and cold. Hot and cold. You see it? Yeah. It must have been our wives were in cahoots or something. I don't know what happened. But uh, we're going to be co-teaching this together. And so I'll I'll begin this way. Um, When my son Andrew was three years old, Uh, I was at home watching my older two boys while my wife was out, and she trusted me to do that. And I was sitting there, and Andrew comes down, three years old. I'm watching a football game. It's a Saturday afternoon on the TV, and he says, Dad, uh, can I get you a drink of water? And I, without even really looking at him, I said, yeah, that's great, buddy. Go get me a drink of water. I'm watching the game. So he comes back a couple minutes later with this cup of water, and he hands it to me, and he stands right there next to me while I drink the whole cup of water. When I'm done, he says, Dad can I get you another cup of water? And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Go, buddy, anything, right? To keep, to keep you out of my hair while I'm watching this game. So this happens three times, and I'm in the middle of drinking the, three, the third cup of water when the thought enters my head, wait a minute, Andrew cannot reach any of the sinks in this house. <laughs> I didn't hear the hose running out back. So the first thing I did is I stopped drinking. I set the cup down and I said, "Uh, Andrew, buddy, can you show dad where you got this water from? And he very proudly took me by the hand and walked me into the bathroom and pointed at the toilet. (laughs) And as I'm sitting there with two and a half cups of toilet water swimming around inside of me, I think to myself, man, I wish I would have just stopped for two seconds and asked some questions about what it was I was being offered here in this moment. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying, maybe you've heard it before, uh, it's, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> you ever heard this phrase? It refers to, we don't want to take too close a look at the things that we use to satisfy our physical urges and our physical desires with. But, but here's the thing, this first temptation is all about our physical desires, our physical urges. And when we take a good look at what it is, oftentimes that we are offered and that we, that we use to satisfy our physical urges, uh, we actually, when we take a good look at those things, we can be set free. And God actually wants to meet us in those places because there's usually a spiritual need underneath those physical urges that are kind of driving the ship, if you know what I mean. And so I want to jump right into this passage of scripture. This is Matthew chapter 4. We looked at the first two verses last week, and so we'll read those again. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, 
tell these stones to become loaves of bread. That's it. That's the first temptation. If you are the son of God, tell these stones, he's out in the wilderness, to become loaves of bread and eat, satisfy your physical urge. Now, I don't know about you, for years, this temptation bothered me because I would read it and I would think to myself, what's the big deal? Anybody else had that thought? Like when you read that, like the guy is out in the middle of the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Of course he's hungry. Even though Jesus is God, he's also human. He's hungry. What's the big deal about him turning some rocks into bread and satisfying his hunger? But to understand why that's such a big deal, you have to understand why Jesus is out in the wilderness to begin with. As we talked about last week, Jesus is out in the wilderness so that he can be prepared by God for the next three years of ministry that he's going to engage in leading up to his death and his resurrection. And so this is a moment where Jesus is seeking God and he's preparing. It's only after these 40 days that Jesus begins preaching and teaching and healing people and performing miracles. And so for Jesus, there's something to be gained in this moment by allowing the hunger to be there. He's meeting with God. He's seeking God. And and there's something to be gained by allowing that physical urge to go unmet. There's a spiritual need underneath it that he wants to arise to the surface. And so this temptation, at first glance, go ahead to the next slide there. At first glance, this temptation is all about our desires. It's it's all about the ways, the deep-seated ways that we rob ourselves of the best things that God has for us in our lives because we want to satisfy this temporary passing physical urge right now, right here, right now. Uh, For instance, if you are a married man here today and you're struggling with pornography, you know exactly what this temptation is about, don't you? You want a great marriage, you want even a great sex life with your wife, but you want to right now look at this website. And the issue is we rob ourselves of the bigger, better thing that God wants to do in our lives. For God, it's not just about, God doesn't just want to help you avoid pornography. And from a spiritual standpoint, God wants you to have a deep relationship with him and a deep connected relationship with your spouse. That's what he wants for you. Or if you eat in order to cope with stress, and so at two in the morning, you're downing a half gallon of ice cream, which I have done before. Anybody else? I I find that peanut butter and ice cream at 2 a.m. really helps to stuff the feelings down so I can go to sleep. If anybody else has that issue and you eat to cope with stress, you you understand like the the issue is it's not just about keeping bad food out of your mouth, right? It's about having healthy alternatives and all that kind of stuff. But even underneath that at a spiritual level, God doesn't just want you to be thin. The issue is from a spiritual standpoint, God wants to be the place that you come with your stress, with your anxiety. Instead of turning at 2 a.m. to some food to cope with stress, First Peter talks about, cast your cares on me for I care for you. God wants to be that source. He wants to be that place that we run to, that we go to when we find ourselves in the midst of stress and anxiety. Or for you, uh, if you um, are in all kinds of debt, maybe you're in over your head in consumer debt, you know exactly what this temptation is about as well. It's not just about, you know, stop shopping, stop keeping, you know, try to keep bad things out of your house that you don't really need. It's about having a plan for your money and a plan for where your money is going to go and and to get out of debt. We know that. But even underneath that, from a spiritual standpoint, God God really doesn't want you rich and he doesn't really want you poor, either one. 
What God wants is he wants your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the issue for, for him. He wants that deep, connected relationship with your heart. So at first glance, this is all about our physical desires. But underneath those physical desires, if you, if you really take the time to explore them and pull them apart in your life, what you begin to see is that there's a deeper spiritual need underneath them every time. So if you ever wonder why we only drink bottled water up here, now you know. <laughs> Took a second. I was waiting for it. I was waiting. That was good. <laughs> So uh, it's really interesting as Brian's unpacking this passage and where Jesus is at in scripture, how interesting is it that Jesus, as he enters into his time of testing, is immediately preceded by 40 days of fasting, 40 days of going without. And if, you've, if you're familiar with fasting, if you've done it before or if you've heard it taught on before or you've participated in any way of fasting, here's what you probably know is fasting is always associated, especially in our culture, with something that we don't consume. Something that we don't eat, something that we don't drink. You heard Brad talking about it this morning, talking about sugar. You heard Brian talking about it. Fasting, oftentimes, the way that we approach it is something that we don't add into our bodies or into our life. And so fasting, we remove it for the sake of something better. But in Scripture, and this is so important in Scripture, fasting is what, it's so much more about what you put into your body than what you keep out of it. And in fact, so Jesus, as he spends 40 days in the wilderness, he gets physically hungry. He gets weak, but it's for a purpose because his spirit becomes stronger. Jesus, in the 40 days, didn't just spend time without consuming and without food. What he did is he spent time in the word of God, dwelling on the word of God, allowing that to speak to his spirit and to strengthen him. So fasting is not actually withholding. Fasting is quite the opposite. Fasting is feasting. In a time of fasting, what we do is we make ourselves, we deprive ourselves or our bodies physically for the sake of something spiritually. So when I was younger, uh, I was on a basketball team at uh, the school that I was at, and we had moved. So we were in this little town in Lexington, Illinois. Probably never heard of it, never will. Uh, Central Illinois, tiny, dinky little town, and we moved to Chicago. And so I played soccer in Lexington, unbeknownst to a lot of you, right? I know this doesn't scream soccer, but I played it, and I liked it. But when I moved to Chicago, basketball was the sport. It was, the, it was the thing to do. It was the sport to be in. And so as I walked into the gym for the first time, I, I still remember this into the school, I remember looking around at like the walls of the school and lined multiple times around every wall were state and national championship banners for both the men's team and the women's team. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like I'm, I'm actually at a good school where they're good at sports. And, and so I started learning basketball. And I remember my mom said, hey, do you want to do basketball camp in the summer? And so I'd grown up going to camp. Camp was always fun. I showed up to this camp and it was the worst week of my life. It was horrible, unair conditioned gym, hot, stuffy. You pack in like a hundred, you know, sweaty, stinky men and women, and it just it lingers, you know, like to the point where you could taste it. You ever have that when you walk into a gym? You're like, yep, there's a lot of sweat going on, and it's airborne. So this is the gym, and I walk in, and our coach never, never let us drink water. Ever. I don't know if you've been on a team like this before, but you know, it's, it's not even like we're that competitive, okay? But he would never let us drink water, and so we'd run scrimmages, and we'd play games, games. They weren't fun games. They were exercise games. Uh, but if one person, he had a rule, if one person took a water break before he allowed us to, 
the whole team would line up and he would run us for suicides, back and forth and back and forth. And then just to, to seal the deal, this is how we would end practices, is all of us had to shoot 12 free throws from the free throw line, two at a time, and you were guaranteed, so you, as you come up to the line, I have to shoot two free throws, I already have to run one lap around the gym. It's just a given. But for every free throw you miss, you have to run an additional lap. So guess who's running 18 laps before the end of every practice? And here's the thing, we went without water and we were thirsty and we were angry and it was upsetting and it's just like, oh, I don't get it, I don't understand. But here's the thing that we didn't realize is that our coach's ability to withhold something from us, something that we thought we needed, something that our bodies craved and desired, something that I was convinced I was gonna die if I didn't get, actually translated into something that our opponents didn't have when the games rolled around. Something called endurance, stamina. We could push farther than our opponents could because what we were used to was withholding or depriving ourselves of something we thought we needed for the sake of gaining something much more valuable. This is what Jesus was doing in the wilderness. This is fasting. Fasting, the whole purpose of fasting is withholding something that we want or that we desire or that we're convinced that we need and it trains our body to make us stronger spiritually. So Jesus, as he goes into this time of testing, he didn't go in weaker. Scripture says he, he came in hungry, but hungry is attached to a physical need. But Jesus, although coming in physically maybe weaker or physically hungry, he came in spiritually stronger. So look at Jesus' response here. We're going to read this together. This is Matthew 4, starting in verse 4. Jesus says this, he answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, this is so cool and so important, and it's something that's easy to skip over or overlook. But Jesus, when he says this in response to being tested, is actually quoting something that Moses had written in the book of Deuteronomy. And so in Deuteronomy 8, it says this. Be careful, Moses is talking to the Israelites. Be careful to obey all the commands that I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these, how many years? 40 years. 40 years. Humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. And he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is doing what Israel couldn't do in the past. 
It's like it replayed itself. Israel spent 40 years in the desert. God led them. He said, follow me. And so they were following him, but they were frustrated and they were angry and they were complaining because the physical needs just have this tendency to bring up much deeper, more spiritually seated things. And so Israel, as it's tracking through the wilderness for 40 years, they're angry and God every single day is providing manna bread rained down from heaven and only enough for what they needed that day. And they grumbled and they complained. And then this, as Jesus talks about testing the motives of their heart, what the Israelites would do is God said, hey, take only what you need for the day. And they wouldn't. They would take extra. And they would hide it in their tents. And they'd put it in sacks and they would store it away because the motives of their heart leaned towards independence, not dependence. And so when they would go back and they would look at the manna, it would have worms on it and it would be moldy. And it was only a matter of hours that they had had it. The whole purpose was God was trying to create this relationship of dependence with them. Saying, you can trust me for your needs, both physical and spiritual. So at first glance, when we read this, as we look through this passage, this temptation is about what? Desires. But on a closer look, This temptation is also about provision. God desires to meet our needs. But this season of testing or a season of wilderness is meant to bring out the motives, to bring out the character that exists underneath, to create a relationship of dependence between God and his people because God desires to be the means of dependence for his people. God desires, is the last thing I'll say, God desires to provide much more than just physical needs for his people. But he desires to meet even deeper than that, the spiritual needs of those who call themselves his. When I was little, I had a stuffed teddy bear that I took with me everywhere, and I creatively named him Teddy. Uh, And um, my mom, at a certain point, she decided that I was too old to have a teddy bear that went with me everywhere. And so um, I didn't want to give up the teddy bear. She wanted me to give up the teddy bear. And so she took advantage of an opportunity that presented itself one day. On on the drive home, I was in the backseat of the car. I had Teddy with me and I fell asleep. And so when we got uh, to home, my mom opened up the back door. She saw me asleep. She saw Teddy on the seat right next to me. And she took Teddy and she hid him. And then when I woke up, I said, well, where's Teddy? And she said, oh, you must have lost him. This is not a parenting sermon, by the way. This is not advice. Um, I'm still in therapy working through this. But um, she she hid Teddy and it was just, he must have lost him. And so for a week, I cried and cried. I'd looked everywhere throughout the whole house. I was so heartbroken. I just kept looking for Teddy. I can't find Teddy and was just so sad about it. But then after a period of time, I did what all kids do. I grew up and I forgot about it. I moved on. And so three years go by. And one day my mom is cleaning out all these boxes in the house and she finds Teddy. She had hit him and like put him away, you know, and and so she pulls out, here he is, here's Teddy. And so she calls me in from the other room and I walk in, it's three years since I thought I lost him. And there she's holding Teddy in her hands. And so she tells me the whole story of what she did and everything. And, and I'll never forget, as she holds out this bear to me, I remember looking at this teddy bear and thinking to myself, this is what I wanted so bad? Like, this is, this is the thing I cried about for a week? I looked at I me, mean, it's this tattered, 
torn. His fur was matted. He smelled bad. I mean, like this is the thing I cried about and searched the whole house for a week looking for. Here, here's the thing. The bearer had not changed. It was me that had changed. The teddy bear was exactly the same as he'd been on the day I lost him. He looked exactly the same. My mom did absolutely nothing with him. It was me that had changed. It was me that had grown up and, and matured and developed. And this is what fasting does for us in our lives. It's the same with our desires. When we, when we remove that desire from our lives for a period of time or when we deny that physical desire in, in a period of fasting, what happens is God begins to provide for us. He begins to enter into that space that's created and we mature and we grow. And what happens is when we come back to those desires, it's not the desires that have changed. They're the same old physical urges. They're the same old desires, but it's us that have changed. And those things have a different place in our lives. They're still the same desires. They can still pull at us in the same way. But what happens is when God begins to move into that space in our lives, when we return to those desires, they have just a different role, a different place in our lives. And so as we think about us as a church, last week we talked about what are our physical needs right now? And we talked about as a church, uh, we have a roof and we have a sound system that are at the end of their lifespan. And so what has kind of prompted this whole move is, is from our leadership team and everybody just sensing from the Holy Spirit that it's time for us to just humble ourselves and seek God together as a church and just say, God, what is the way that you want to meet these needs? What is the way that you want to enter into this place where we need provision? We need you to, to provide for your church in this way. And we need to seek him for his plan. Um, and as I've been fasting this past week and as I was um, just praying and, and wrestling through this, uh, one of the things that that struck me is, yes, we have these physical needs. We need a roof. We need a sound system. But our calling is actually to reach our community. That's why we're here. That's why we have this building. For what's happening with the storehouse right now and, and the, what's being given back to the community and then what's happening in the ministry side of the church here, our calling is to reach our community. So if we get somehow a new roof and a new sound system but we don't have a new passion as a church to reach our community, it doesn't matter. Honestly, it's meaningless. But what we need is for God to move in our lives, move in our hearts and stir us again. Light us on fire again. Break our hearts again for our community, for our world that sits outside of these four walls of this church. That's the bigger spiritual need we have. That's what God, I think, really wants to do. Um, we put together, I don't know if you've noticed on your seats when you walked in, there, there was this infographic. And so you, you were handed the prayer and fasting guide, but there's also, we basically just said, uh, we want to try to tell the story. Uh, we said last week, we want to hear your stories of what God does in your life and how he stirs you during this time of prayer and fasting. And for us, we just want to retell the story of our church, the moments where God has provided for us, where, where we, the breakthrough moments where we've needed him to move. And so um, these are, this is sort of an infographic here that tells the story of Frontline and then Center Church, our sister campus that we merged with in 2016. And um, so you can see sort of the God moments, the only God moments um, that have happened throughout our history. And as I was looking at this, I helped put this together. But as I was sitting back and taking a look at it, the thing that I noticed as I looked at uh, each one of these moments, each one of these turning points, these breakthrough moments in our story, in our history, what I realized, what every single one of these is about, there is a common thread that runs through all of them, and that common thread is people. People. 
The only reason these breakthrough moments are significant, the only reason that we would even call them turning points where God moved in a powerful way is because they positioned us to reach more people, period. They were breakthrough moments where, where God moved in, a, in, a, in an unexpected way and we saw people come into the kingdom. It was like we were singing about a moment ago, the reckless love of God that drove these things and the passion to reach people. That's what drove it. And so as you think about what's going on in your life, as you fast even this week from a meal during lunch and seek God and pray, and as, and as you seek him and, and do that, don't just look at what's the physical need, but begin to ask God, what is the deeper spiritual need, the, the stirring that you want to do in my life as a result of there being this space where that need is going unmet? So just a couple chapters later, in Matthew 7, we've been spending time in Matthew 4, but in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples and his followers, and he says this, I want to describe to you the character of God. I just want to, get, I want to give you handles just to give you an idea of how, how tangible God's love is and what the kind of provider that he is. So Matthew 7, it says this, starting in verse 9, he says, you parents... And so if you're a parent in the room, just try to embody this or imagine this. But he says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? You know, oftentimes I've read this in the past and you read it from, from the perspective of God as a giver and you understand and you go, okay, God's a good father who, who loves his kids and wants to take care of them. And, and what you have to understand too, just about the culture or the context in which this is written, all four of those things were staples in Israel. You have stones everywhere. It's, it's very arid. It's an arid desert-like climate. And fish was, was an industry that, that just fed a lot of people, literally and also economically. And then snakes were a danger. Snakes in the desert, of course, are a danger. And um, I'm trying to remember what the last of bread. Bread is the staple. They, they didn't have pizza, okay? Bread. They would have bread. They would make it for the day of, and the bread would sustain them for the day. And so all four of these things are staples. And so Jesus, as he speaks to these, they all know them. And bread in particular is so important because it's, it's, it's needed for life, it's a sustainer. And so Jesus, as he says this to his disciples and to the people that are there, he said, how many of you, if your kids come and ask you for life, they ask you for sustenance, they ask you for nutrition, they ask you for something that will, that will feed them, that will take care of them, how many of you would deliver something useless, like a rock? How many would give them something pointless? That does nothing. And then he takes it a step further and he says, how many of you, if they, if they ask for fish, same kind of deal, same kind of principle, would give them a snake? And snake is important because a snake, it's not just useless, it's not just pointless. A snake is dangerous. How many of you parents, if your children asked for something that they wanted, would you indulge and give in if it was dangerous to their health or to their life? Jesus is saying, of course not. None of us would. But here's what we need to remember is that God is a provider who desires to give good gifts to his children far beyond what you and I can imagine or even do for our own kids. But here's what I often forget 
is when I read this from the perspective of God as a giver, I often forget that I'm the child in the story. That God is a God who can be trusted. And often, and I'm just, I'll just look for a, a facial response here, but for you parents, how many of your kids know what's best for them? And particularly if you have teenagers, how many of them know what's best for them? Right? It's funny. I, I, this is a side note. I remember my aunt got a plaque once that said raising teenagers is like nailing jello to a tree. Anybody relate to that? Sometimes I feel like a teenager to God. I'm like, you just keep nailing, you know, it'll stick eventually. This is why I bring it up though, is, is oftentimes children don't know what's best for them. And as they approach God, or as we approach God, embody yourself here, you're a child of the one true king. And oftentimes things that we pray for in our minds are bread. In our minds are fish. They're good for us. They're things that help us. They're things that sustain us and they give us life. God, please help me get a promotion. God, please help me find a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. God, help me find a house or a better job or better circumstances. Help me get my kids back. Whatever it is for you, whatever it is, this wilderness, this thing that you say, you say, God, please give me this. Give me, please sustain me. Oftentimes, what we ask for may not be bread and fish, but may in fact be a stone or a snake. And God being a good father may withhold those. Just like maybe many of you parents would withhold something that your kids desire, but you know what's best for them, or maybe even just not yet. So as a lot of you know, um, the last three weeks, my life changed a ton. Uh, really turned upside down, and sleep is no longer this thing that I enjoy anymore. Um, but I want to show you a picture. This, uh, Shane and I welcomed our first baby home uh, three weeks ago, and this is Aww. Judah. Come on, give me the awes. I've been waiting for this. Aww. So this is Judah David, and uh, th now we get the awes. Okay. <laughs> and uh, this is what changed for me. And if you're a parent, I think you'll be able to relate to this or a grandparent, but, but my favorite thing to do in the world with my son is to sit on a chair or to sit on a couch with him just curled right up on my chest. I call it the tree frog, right? His legs are all up. He just chills. He stays. He doesn't go anywhere. And he's in a state of total dependence on us, 100%. He doesn't need anything I just named. He doesn't need a 401k or a job or a promotion. He definitely doesn't need a girlfriend or a car. He doesn't need any of that. But what he does need is amply provided for him at no cost from his parents who are crazy about him. And this has totally changed my perspective of God the last three weeks. Because what God desires is that we would have that type of relationship with him. Not that we live in independence, not that we supply our own needs, and not that we just throw a Hail Mary and say, God, please give me what I want right now so that I don't need you any longer. What God desires is he says, just come be with me. Just come curl up on my lap. Let me provide for every single need that you have, and you will experience the goodness and the abundance that I have to offer, not just physically, but spiritually as well. So pastor, uh, I heard this quote just in the last week, and I loved it. And he says this, he says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but you might be aware of three of them. God is such a good father. 
who is at work for your benefit and for your good to help you and to nourish you and to provide for you. And he can be trusted with things that you need even if you don't know you need them yet. So I just wanna ask these two questions just for us to sit with today. And the first one is this, are you willing to trust him to provide for needs that you may not even be aware of yet? And the second one is this, what do you need to let go of to allow him to provide for you? Something you don't see in this passage until you look at it in the bigger context is that at the end of Matthew chapter 3, right before this story we're looking at, Jesus goes out into the Jordan River and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And in this moment as Jesus is baptized, the heavens open and a voice from heaven, it's the voice of the Father, says for everyone to hear, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. That's what the Father says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And immediately what happens next is Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And as soon as he is confronted by the devil, the very first words out of the devil's mouth in this very first temptation, if you caught them, are, if you really are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you really are the Son of God, you you see what he's doing right there. But what he's doing, the first thing the devil does is he goes right after Jesus' identity that's just been confirmed as the Son of God, the dearly loved Son of God with whom God is well pleased. And I think to myself, how often does the enemy do that to you? How often does he do that to me? The very first thing he does is he goes right after our identity and he begins to suggest, if you really were a child of God, you wouldn't be struggling like this. This is what he's saying to Jesus. If you really were a child of God, prove it. Turn these rocks into bread. You wouldn't be struggling like this. God wouldn't just leave you like this. If you really were a Christian, if you really were a follower of Christ, if you really were all the things that God says that you are, you wouldn't go through times where things were hard and where your needs weren't being met. You'd be able to handle that. You'd be able to take care of that in your own way. And I wonder if even this morning, maybe you failed in this area. Maybe right now, the voice of the enemy is whispering in your ear, You thought you were, but you aren't. You really thought you were a child of God. You really thought, but if you really were, why are you struggling with this? Why are you having this problem? And so I can think of no better way. We were excited to do this teaching on this day and to close with baptism. And so um, in a moment, the band is going to lead us in a song. And as, uh, and as um, we sing together, uh, David and I are going to hang out up here. And we'd love for those of you who have let us know that you want to get baptized, come up here and just join us right here on this side of the stage as we sing. And baptism is this powerful uh, symbolic moment. And, and we, what we do is we follow Jesus in baptism and we identify with him. Romans 6 talks about uh, the, the symbolism we interact with. That just as Jesus died and was buried, when we go down in the water in the same way, we're saying, I'm dying to my old life. I'm dying to my old habits. I'm dying to me trying to do it myself. I'm dying to the independent life like David was just talking about, of me trying to solve my own problems in my own way. And just like Jesus uh, was was uh, raised to a new life in his resurrection. When we come out of the water, we're following him into that new life and we're saying, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. I, I have a new life in Christ. That's the symbolism of what we're celebrating here. And so um, I want to talk specifically to, to you. If you, maybe you came here this morning, you didn't plan to get baptized. Maybe you weren't in, in, t- planning on taking that step. 
And uh, I just want to let you know, maybe it's your time to go public in Je- with Jesus. Maybe you've been trying on your own. Maybe the enemy's been whispering in your ear. If you really were, baptism is literally this symbolic moment of going public with our faith to our whole church family and saying, I can't do it myself. I'm done building the altar of I'll do it myself. And I'm giving my life fully to God. That's what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. He triumphed in the wilderness and in him we can overcome too. Not by our own power, but by his. And so I want to challenge you to make a bold move. As we sing this song, I want you to come down too and join us over here on this side of the stage. And if you're worried about, oh man, I, I, I didn't dress for this. I didn't, it's freezing cold outside. Here's the deal. We've got towels right under here. We've got people who would love to connect with you. We've got free t-shirts for anybody who gets baptized. Don't get baptized just to get a free t-shirt. I need to say that. Do it because you know God is calling you to a new life in him. And that you're a child of God. And it's time to proclaim that. It's time to stop living the old life. It's time to live into the new life. If that's you, join us up here. And we'll celebrate that with you. But would you stand with us? Love to offer a prayer. And uh, then as we sing, you can come and join us. So Lord Jesus, as we enter into this time, we just recognize uh, that we have an enemy that is very real and that hates us. And hates us for no other reason than we are dearly loved by you. And, And as you speak to us, God, as you call us to be your children, as you call us to be fully surrendered to you, Nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove, but just your child. The enemy wants to whisper in our ears, that's not good enough. You need to prove yourself. You need to show that you can do it on your own and none of us have that power. And so God, we come to you. Right now we rest in you. We surrender ourselves to you. And we thank you for the, for the cross that we've been singing about. We thank you for the reckless love of God. We thank you for the empty tomb and the hope that we have of new life. And so God, as we celebrate and as we sing, um, would you just meet with us and remind us of that? In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.